Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. Uh, this week we're going to be reading from, uh, uh, from Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Um, so last week we looked at Mark chapter 6, where at the end of that passage, many were um, clambering to try to even touch the edge of Jesus' cloak to be healed. And that's how this, this passage starts as well. Chapter 8, verse 22, through to the end of chapter 8. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory. With the holy angels. A couple of weeks ago, my kids and I were up early minding our own business, and my kids looked out the back window over the back fence and they spotted something. They shouted out, so I grabbed our youngest, we ran out, I lifted him over the fence, and we looked, and you know what we saw? Roll the tape, Joa. See, that's my cue. I know, in February, ducklings. Did you know that was a thing in February? I was taught spring, but here we are, here we are. Can't argue with the evidence. And do you see, what are they doing? Not rhetorical, what are they doing? They're following their mama, that's right. Thanks for saying the correct term, mama. They are following their mama, just like a good duckling does. A good duckling goes where their mama goes. But this evening, I want to read to you a story about what happens when a duckling doesn't go where their mama goes. So, story time. All right, this little book is called Alexander's Outing. 
It is a Sydney classic. I hope you recognize some of the locations. All right, and I'm going to read it upside down, but you can look at the screen as well. Alexander's outing. Alexander lived with his mother and his four brothers and sisters in the most beautiful place in the whole of Sydney. But Alexander's mother was bored. So one warm sunny morning, they all set out in search of adventure. Past the bottle tree, through the iron gates, and along Art Gallery Road. Stay close, take care, quacked Alexander's mother. (laughs) But Alexander did not stay close, and Alexander did not take care. He straggled behind with his head in the air. In College Street, a man rushed out and stopped the traffic. Stay close, take care, quacked Alexander's mother. But Alexander did not stay close, and Alexander did not take care. He struggled, struggled behind, and he did not hear. By the time they reached the other side, Alexander had disappeared. Alexander's mother quacked and quacked, Alexander, Alexander, and all his brothers and sisters quacked and quacked and flapped and flapped, but they couldn't find Alexander anywhere. When they stopped making such a din, they heard a faint, distant quack from deep down in the earth. A young man and a middle-aged lady came over to see what was going on. The young man tried to reach Alexander, but his long arms were not long enough. The middle-aged lady had an umbrella, so the young man tried again with his long arms and the umbrella, but they weren't long enough either. A young couple picnicking in Hyde Park heard all the commotion, packed up their basket and came over to see what all the fuss was about. How are we going to get him out? The middle-aged lady asked. The young couple had no idea. Cheer up, they called out, and dropped a half-eaten cheese sandwich down the hall. Whack! (laughs) A policeman arrived. He knew exactly what to do. He lowered his whistle down the hall on the end of a long piece of string. Here, he shouted, grab hold of this. But Alexander did not grab hold. Alexander did not hear. A small boy and his mother joined the crowd. A feeble quack came from deep down in the hall. How were they going to get him out? Then, before anyone could stop him, the small boy tipped his drink down the hall. Yeah, yeah, he'd gone and drowned the poor little blighter, shouted the young man with the long arms. And they all tried to peer down the deep, dark hall to see. Everyone started talking at once. They all wanted to rescue Alexander, but how were they going to do it? From their basket, the young picnickers handed out two cups, two plastic bags, one lunchbox, and one thermos flask. The small boy still had his empty drink can. Then, ducks and all, they pranced in one long snaky line to the Archibald Fountain. Now, dripping and tipping, dripping and tipping, skipping and dripping, quacking and flapping, dripping and skipping, from the fountain to the hole and back again, they pranced. Slowly the water rose, up and up and up, until... Out popped Alexander like the cork out of a bottle. His mother flapped and flapped and quacked and quacked, and all his brothers and sisters flapped and flapped and quacked and quacked. Such joyful quacking, such happy flapping. When the celebrations were over, they set off, still quacking and flapping, back across College Street, along Art Gallery Road, through the Iron Gates, 
past the bottle tree and got safely home in time for tea. Quack, quack, quack. Good job, Pamela Allen. But now, time for the quiz. All right, Alexander, what did he do wrong? He did not stay close. He did not take care. He didn't listen to his mama. He didn't go where his mama went until he fell down a hole. And this is probably the most random way I've started a sermon, but there's a point to this. Ducklings go where their mamas go. And followers of Jesus go where Jesus goes. One of Jesus' preferred way of describing the people that belong to him, the people in his family, is to call them followers. They go behind him like good ducklings. They go where Jesus goes. And that's our series in the Gospel of Mark. We called it Drop Your Nets, Follow Jesus. This idea of following Jesus, and that's what our passage is about tonight. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump back into what Tim just read for us. Lord God, we pray that you would be using your word tonight to help us to more closely stay behind Jesus and follow him. We pray that we'd be transformed by it and we'd be agents of transformation in the world by it as well. In his name, amen. Sometimes I feel a little bit envious of Jesus' disciples that they got to follow him in the flesh. In my head, it sounds easier, like a lot less ambiguous, just go where he goes. But then I read passages like this one that we just read, and I think, man, it would have been really stressful sometimes to be that close to Jesus, to have to understand what was going on, to know how to answer the hard questions he was throwing out. Jesus and his disciples are in the small village of Bethsaida near the Sea of Galilee, and a group of people bring a blind man to Jesus and immediately start begging him that he would heal this man, that he'd just touch him and heal him. And we've seen Jesus do this a lot of times so far in Mark's Gospel. We know this would be so easy for Jesus to do, but he doesn't do it right away. Instead, notice the love and dignity he shows this man. In a situation where everyone is looking at the one person who can't see, Jesus instead decides to take him away, outside the village, away from the Gorkas, to heal him in private. Once they're outside the village, Jesus puts saliva on the man's eyes, touches him and asks if he can see. The man looks about and he decides he can see, but not as well as he was expecting. So Jesus touches him again, and now he can see everything clearly. And it's a strange story, isn't it? I can't really think of another healing that Jesus does where he needs a mulligan and he has to do it over again. But whenever Jesus seems to be acting weird in a gospel in a gospel story, the best thing to do is to look what's around this passage. So let me just quickly take you back earlier in chapter 8. The Pharisees, these constant clashes with Jesus, they're demanding that they get to see a sign. But Jesus won't give them a sign. He says, you've already seen enough signs already. He's not going to give them one. They still don't get it. Though seeing, they can't truly see. And another sign's not going to change that. Then he warns the disciples to watch out for the negative influence of the Pharisees. But the disciples get really confused about it. And Jesus says to them, Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? The disciples aren't seeing clearly. And so now, the way in which Jesus heals this blind man works as a kind of enacted parable. He wants the disciples to get 
that partial sight is inadequate sight. That partial understanding is inadequate understanding. And that partially following Jesus is inadequately following Jesus. Just like Jesus had better for this blind man, Jesus has better for his disciples too. From Bethsaida, Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi in the north, in the far north, and the disciples follow along. And on the way, it seems like Jesus just casually drops, who do people say I am? And I can just imagine the disciples starting to sweat, and they start conferring amongst themselves, they're debating what should we say, and they decide the best option is just to cover their bases. And so they say, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, and still others, one of the prophets. People are obviously seeing that there's something special about Jesus. They know he's really significant, but they're all way off the mark. They're not seeing clearly enough. So Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter gets it. He's seen enough to know. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the promised king, the one, the chosen one whose job it was to save God's people, the one that John the Baptist and Elijah and all the other prophets were just preparing for. And the disciples must have felt such a thrill when they heard Jesus confirm this. Finally, at last, the Messiah is here and he's right in front of them. By the time of Jesus, Jewish people were longing for a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans that were ruling over them and establish a new kingdom of Israel. They were anticipating a a political and national superhero that was going to crush his enemies and force foreign kings to bow down. But having confirmed that he is the Messiah, Jesus immediately tells them not to tell anyone else. He knows the disciples aren't seeing clearly enough yet. And he knows the crowds will see even less clearly. Before they can know he is the Messiah, they need to know not what they think that means, but what that actually means. So Jesus starts by explaining it to his inner circle. He starts by explaining it to the disciples. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. The Son of Man is Jesus' preferred title to refer to himself. So he says the Son of Man is going to suffer, be rejected by the religious and political authorities, and then executed. And after three days, rise again. That last part, rise again, is really significant, but I think we can forgive the disciples for being distracted by those first three statements. The Messiah was supposed to rule in victory. How could he be so weak? The Messiah was going to lead the religious leaders. How could he be rejected by them? The Messiah was going to reign forever, so how could he die? And so Peter, massive heat check, Peter, high off the success of saying that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter, he jumps in, he pulls Jesus aside for a one-on-one and he tries to set him straight. But Jesus cuts him off and it's brutal. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. To suggest that Peter's words reflect the way of Satan, that's rough. But it's also apt 
He's not seeing clearly. Peter wants victory without the cross. He wants Jesus to set up his own political kingdom through might and conquest. Just like Satan tried to tempt Jesus to do back in the wilderness at the start of Jesus' story. I've always read that phrase, get behind me, Satan, as get out of my way, Satan. And I think it does mean that. There's an element of that to it. But there's more to it as well. I want you to notice a couple of things. So looking at how right before Jesus rebukes Peter, look at what Mark says, that Jesus looks, he turns and looks at his group of disciples. He looks over at his disciples, back at the group, back where Peter should be. And then he tells Peter to get behind him. The Greek word translated behind here, we're going to do some Greek. The Greek word translated behind here is apiso. Apiso is a word that only comes up a few times in Mark's gospel. So way back in chapter 1, Jesus finds Peter and his brother Andrew out fishing and he tells them, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. For that word, follow. That's a piso. Then James and John drop their nets to a piso Jesus, to follow after Jesus. Jesus isn't just telling Peter to get out of the way. He's telling them to either get out of the way with Satan or get behind me. Get back to where he should be following after Jesus. You remember Alexander the Duckling, right? What did he need to do? Stay close. Take care. Stay behind his mama. And this is Peter's Alexander moment. Jesus is telling him to stay close, take care. Ducklings stay behind their mama. Disciples stay behind Jesus. And this is such a crucial moment for Peter that he doesn't want him to wander off now in misunderstanding. Followers of Jesus go where Jesus goes. Then Jesus makes this conversation, a conversation for everyone, which I'm sure Peter just loved. He gathers everyone in, and in our translation he says, whoever wants to be my disciple. But in Greek it doesn't say whoever wants to be my disciple, it says whoever wants to apiso me. See how closely those are connected. That's not to say our translation is bad, it's a great translation, I just wanted to point that out for you. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow along behind me, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I think it's a lot easier to understand this when we know what comes next. That Jesus is actually going to take up a cross and die. And if we really want to follow him, that means we go where he goes. We stay close, we take care, we pick up our crosses too. And in Australia, we might not literally die for following Jesus, although that's definitely in the cards for a lot of people in the world. But we absolutely should be denying ourselves as we follow him. If we don't, we aren't going where he goes. And if we aren't going where he goes, then we become like Peter, out of position, misunderstanding, even when we think we're the ones that are seeing clearly. I've seen Christians that think the way of Jesus is the way to more power. That we should be the ones in charge of society, controlling people's behavior. 
but the Messiah chose weakness. I've seen Christians that think the way of Jesus is the way of acceptance, fitting in, but the Messiah chose rejection. I've seen Christians that think the way of Jesus is the way to great wealth, but the Messiah chose simplicity. I've seen Christians that think the way of Jesus is the way to perfect health, but the Messiah chose suffering. I've seen Christians that think the way of Jesus is the way to comfort or ease a clean life without the mess, everything nice without hardship or inconvenience, but the, the Messiah chose to die for messed up sinners. And it's so easy for me to point the finger, but I've also been a Christian that thinks along these lines. I've also been a Christian that thinks the way of Jesus is about merely human concerns. But the way of the Messiah, the way of the Christ, is the way of the cross. As daunting, overwhelming, and unappealing as that sounds, the way of the Christ is the way of the cross. It sounds unappealing until we see clearly what the disciples missed earlier. That Jesus promised it's also the way to life. Not the old life, but a new life right behind Jesus. And in this new life, we exchange heart-dulling, soul-numbing self-love for sometimes heartbreaking, but also heart-overflowing, heart-bursting love for others. We exchange the conditional acceptance of a fickle crowd for the unconditional acceptance of the Creator. We exchange fleeting highs for lasting joy. We exchange empty pursuits and aimless aspirations for purpose that will matter forever. We exchange a neat, contained, curated life that avoids the messiness of this world for a life where Jesus gives us peace while we're getting our hands dirty in the mess. We exchange a life that leads to death for death that leads to life. Stay close. Take care. Go where Jesus goes. Even to the cross. Even to life. Let's pray. Lord God, our, we don't want the cross, not in our natural selves. We want to run away and compromise and settle for being half-hearted disciples. But our world doesn't need more half-hearted disciples. Our world needs people like Jesus that will take up their cross and follow him. So make us those people, please. Make us people that stay close, that take care, and that follow after him, even to the cross and even to life. For our sake, for the world's sake, for his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmatts.org.au. 
and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.